So no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you, you are, are welcome, welcome here. here. Um, I hope you find this presentation today to be personal, practical, and useful. And you, as you know, we're, we're basing these talks on um, the writing of the Christian scriptures called the Gospel of John. And most scholars say that John was probably composed by at least four authors. And uh, from what I'm reading now, uh, the Gospel of John was composed, now they think sometime in the first 10 years of the second century, 106, 100, maybe even as late as 110. So central to the Gospel of John is what is called the Book of Signs. And um, there are seven signs in John. One of them we have dealt with, turning water into wine, is one. And the next sign is the healing of the centurion's son. And sandwiched between these signs are a couple of stories. And we're dealing with the first one. This is the second Sunday that we will be dealing with Nicodemus. Or as one of my colleagues preached a sermon on him, Nick at Night. Nick at Night. <laughs> yeah. That's like the children's channel, too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's good. So there are other signs in the Book of Signs. I'll just uh, tell them to you quickly. There is the healing of the paralytic. There is the feeling, uh, feeding of the multitude. Uh, there is Jesus walking on water. There is healing of the blind man. And there is the raising of Lazarus. There's six of them. So we've just done one. So interspersed between these book of signs are other incidents and speeches. When we get to the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus will have become a really outstanding public speaker. Who, who I don't mean, he doesn't speak in parables. There are no parables in John. But he gives these really long speeches. Um, so there are two stories between the water and the wine and the healing of the centurion's son, Nicodemus, the story of what it means to be born from above. The phrase born again, I'm so sorry that worked itself into religious language because it has done so much damage. Hmm. Have you been born again? And that's hmm. not what it means. Have you been born from above? Have you, meaning, have you moved into a higher level of consciousness? That's what that means. So I entered the seminary in 1960. And for those of you not swift at math like me, that was 61 years ago. And our professor of New Testament studies had two students come to the front of the class and read the dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus like Holly and I did two weeks ago. And he had another student with a stopwatch who timed it. The whole thing takes less than three minutes. And yet... The story says that Nicodemus spent the entire evening with John. And the professor went on to say, there was no one else there. So who reported on this story? <laughs> it was not Jesus' style to be so self-serving. So the professor said, I submit to you, that the story of Nicodemus and Nicodemus himself is a fictitious story. It didn't happen. 
Nicodemus is not a real guy. But the professor went on to say the story has profound meaning because Nicodemus is one of the most memorable characters in the entire Christian writing. Now, I promise you, no ministerial student left and went the next Sunday and said to his church, oh, by the way, Nicodemus is a fictitious character. We didn't do that. That would have, that would have not gone over well, I can promise you. But to say the story isn't real or that Nicodemus isn't real doesn't mean that this story isn't true. This is a parable that the early church told about Jesus. This is the professor from whom I learned that teaching. Jesus taught in parables and his followers taught in parables about Jesus. That made so much sense to me. So recall what was going on with the community of Jesus' followers that produced this gospel. They had proclaimed a message that was so inclusive, as we'll see going forward, that the very strict Jews of the synagogue couldn't tolerate that message and couldn't tolerate them. So they excluded them from the synagogue. That's what was going on. This Johannine community, as it began to be called, that created this gospel that is so very different from all the other gospels. So, if Nicodemus is a, a symbolic character, what is he symbolic of? And what I want to say is Nicodemus is a symbol of those in the synagogue who, even though perhaps impressed by Jesus, could never take the step into the transformative Christ experience. That's one thing. Another thing is that Nicodemus is someone who prefers the darkness to the light. Darkness and light is a major theme in the Gospel of John. You remember the prologue starts with that theme of darkness and light, and it will be carried all throughout the Gospel. So it is important to know that he came to Jesus by night. All right, that's the symbol. Nicodemus is a symbol of somebody who prefers the darkness to the light. So these are powerful symbols, and that's what we are going to deal with today. And, and um, we, I should say I, because I'm the title giver, <laughs> right? Yes. We call this time today the future of faith. Not of belief, not of the institution, but of faith. What is the future of faith, and how do we play a part in that? This is what this uh, community that produced John struggled with. Not wanted by the Jewish community that birthed them, and Nicodemus is a symbol of this community, who would they become? Who would they be? And I'm going to propose that that is exactly the issue that we're facing in this country today, about what is our future, and how do we go forward in the light? How do we give manifestation to that? We are increasingly divided, both um, institutionally and governmentally. So what is our future? And how will we shape that future? And what is our future faith path? Hmm. So two weeks ago, we got into the question of 
as Bill mentioned, what it means to be born again. And like John Sanford does, we approach this more as a psychological process of transformation rather than as a religious event. I loved that Diana Butler Bass mentioned in this room last week that there's something needing to be birthed in this moment. So it's kind of, what is this new consciousness that's being birthed? It's unknown and it's unfamiliar, but we have to pass through this sort of messiness of birth itself in order to experience a new reality. I think that's similar with darkness into light. The second part of the dialogue, oh, come on little guy, there we go. Did I go too far? All right. The second part explains that we can't be born again unless we move through the darkness into light. So it's not a movement from one place to another, like you might move an object in your house from one place to another, but it's a process. Did anyone see the lunar eclipse the other night, get up at 3 in the morning? You did. My kid set an alarm and then didn't. But <laughs> yeah, I saw, I saw the pictures after, but it, it's a great analogy of something moving through darkness back into light. So many seem to say, stuck in the darkness. Um, one of the things that's compelling to me is children's literature, and I've thought about children's literature a lot this week that deals with overcoming darkness. One of my favorites, Harry Potter, <laughs> The Chronicles of Narnia, pretty much any Marvel Universe movie deals with darkness into light, good and evil. I've brought this little book, um, not, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's called The Dark, just to illustrate one little boy's story of his relationship to and reconciliation with the dark. Bill will tell you later that we are, as a culture, in love with the dark. But I recall at one time that more or less every kid I knew, myself included, had a fear of the dark. Maybe it's both fear and love. Whatever it is, however, I think our relationship to the dark needs to change. The kind of darkness growing in our world thrives right now on fear. It's virulently nationalistic and xenophobic and it demands conformity. Staying committed to darkness is indeed a form of denial. It's a rather naive view that everything's gonna be okay if I, just, if I just keep on doing what I'm doing. We think it's going to be okay. So I wanna challenge us to become friends with the dark, to try to learn from it and kind of release its hold on us, if you will. Not so that we walk away from it and never look back, but so that we keep it close and recognize its perpetual presence. There's a wonderful analogy in uh, nature. There is always a wonderful analogy in nature of the Mariana Trench. Has anyone read some of the recent research emerging about the Mariana Tr Trench? It's the deepest place on Earth, and so little is known about it. We know more about deep space than we know about this trench. It is near Guam. It's about 1,500 miles long and 40 miles wide, and it contains, as I said, the deepest, darkest known points on Earth. It's seven or so miles deep, and temperatures stay right above freezing, so it never freezes solid, but it's very cold. It's so deep that Mount Everest would still be submerged 7,000 feet below sea level if it sat on the bottom of this trench. That's what we can guess. The pressure is so high that if we were to go diving in the Mariana Trench, our lungs would immediately combust because of the water, the pressure. It would be so enormous that we would immediately die. 
So they're having to create tools, um, inventions, little scopes that can go down in there that help teach us. It, in the wake of a mass extinction event, the thought is that life could reemerge from the Mariana Trench. There are bacteria and organisms and creatures known th that are there that are not regularly seen in ocean life. And these creatures have adapted to the darkness by developing bioluminescence, these little jellies and this little um, hatchet fish, they have developed a glow. The light, their light illuminates the darkness and helps them navigate it. So the question I think that applies here is they haven't escaped the dark, but they've learned how to adapt to it. And what are the tools that we need to develop to navigate this darkness? There's so many stories and so many traditions, like the one between Jesus and Nicodemus that serve to illustrate this metaphor between dark and light. And that's my purpose today, is to share a few of those stories. You know, I would say that the uh, journey that I have been on from the very beginning uh, has been um, motivated by my fear of the dark as a child. Mm. Because I... Um, I had an older brother, six years older than me, who was mean to me. Mm. And um, not saying I didn't brothers. deserve it, but I mean, <laughs> he made fun of me for being afraid of the dark. Mm -hmm. And I knew growing up that there were some kids who weren't. And I wondered what did they know that I didn't know? What did they have that I didn't have? And so I went on this search for answers to that. And it, I've said this before, but it led me into when I was in junior high and just entering high school reading Paul Tillich. And, you know, if I'd been a psychologist <laughs> at that too. time, I would have said, there's something wrong with this picture. Anyway, Meanwhile, yeah. I brought a ch children's book, not Paul Tillich. I'm just letting you know. <laughs> so Nicodemus is a symbol of someone who lives in a very controlled world. This is how God operates, and don't you paint outside the line. The Jews of that um, era, they had more laws than you could shake a stick at. There were more ways to be unclean, to be extruded from the community, which was a very painful thing, which Jesus went around and turned upside down and caused a lot of trouble. And uh, if that is the mindset that somebody has, they are never going to be able to be birthed into new consciousness. Okay, so you, you remember the story, the Nicodemus story. We're not rereading it again. Nicodemus turn, comes to Jesus and says, you're a great teacher. We know that we've heard that about you. Uh, and Jesus says, uh, you must be born again and um, born from above. And Nicodemus says, I don't understand, how can that be? And Jesus says, and I can't get the feel for this, whether Jesus is being sarcastic or critical. And because what, he, what Jesus says to Nicodemus is, you're a teacher of the law and you don't know this? Implying that he should have known that. Now, if you want to extrapolate from that about people who are in this class, probably who've gone to church a lot in their lifetime. And Jesus would say to us, you don't understand about moving to a higher level? 
and we might say we don't. <laughs> it's part of the faith we represent. But if you ask most people in this country, if they are religious, they will think you have asked them, do you go to church? Because we live in an institutional age. And that's what people have been taught. You are faithful to the tradition if you go to church. And if you read your Bible. And if you believe all the right things. But you got to be part of the church. Now, clearly, people can go to church and still hang on to all of their prejudices. Mm -hmm. They can actively support war. They can support unjust, unjust things, and so forth. The current movement of so-called evangelical Christianity to wed religion with right-wing politics is a clear example of this. So I want to be very clear. John is a mystical writing about a mystical figure. Being born again is about a new dimension of life and not a religious status. It isn't about joining a church. It's about moving from one developmental level to another. It is not about assenting to something. Okay? The, the way I like to say this is that... <clears throat> Jesus did not speak from the kingdom of God. He spoke from the realm of God, and he invited people to join him in that reality. It was not about something spatial. It was not about something that happens after you die. It's about something that is experiential. So I want to say it in a way that drives it home. <clears throat> this is mystical language. It is not religious language. It is mystical language. It is not theological language. It is mystical language. It is not dogmatic language. And if we interpret it with religion or dogmatic or institutional, we're going to miss it. Now, I love reading about the first few hundred years of the Christian movement, what is called by most people the age of faith. And I love reading about what happened after Constantine became the head of the church, the, the, the age of belief. And I love even reading about the age of institutionalism. And they all have their plus sides and their downsides. They all have their downsides and plus sides. Um, each era has its own pluses and minuses. But if you'd taken the writer or writers of the Gospel of John and brought them here today to attend worship across the plaza, <laughs> they would be dumbfounded. They would say, this is not what we had in mind at all. They would probably think that we had reverted to synagogue worship. 
So we have been led to believe that our institutional way of doing it is the right way. Uh, believing uh, is what they had in mind. The, 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 the fact is that um, people whose religious understandings are literal will not experience a deeper meaning of religious truths. So this section in John, the Nicodemus story, is so rich that when we were reading um, in Sanford's book uh, last week, I said, you know, we could camp out here for weeks. We're not going to do that. This is the end of it. Next, next week, we're going to talk about the woman in the well. And in case you missed the announcement slides, the title of next week's talk is, we're going to meet at a very deep well. <laughs> Bring a big bucket. <clears throat> I think the most relevant passage in Nicodemus to what we're doing right now in our culture and in our religion is this. This is Peterson's translation. This is the crisis we're in. God light streamed into the world, but men and women everywhere ran for the darkness. They went for the darkness because they were not really interested in pleasing God. Everyone who makes a practice of doing evil, addicted to denial and illusion, hates God light and won't come near it, fearing a painful exposure. But anyone working and living in truth and reality welcomes God light so the work can be seen for the God work it is. And the way the NRSV translates that is, people love darkness rather than light. Now, why is that? Why do people love the dark? A friend of mine this week told me about an incident he had this past week. He was driving home from a part of town he was not familiar with. Traffic was multi-lane, moving slowly because of rush hour. And he realized that he needed to be over two lanes to the left. And he made his way over signaling. Did he? Huh? Did he use his blinkers? He did. Okay. He used his turn signals. Of course, he's, a, he's your friend. He's a real Christian. Yeah, right. <laughs> but he inadvertently cut somebody off. And he apologized immediately. I'm sorry, you know. But the guy behind him was enraged and blew his horn and gave him that, you know, half a victory signal sign. This one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he could tell. By looking in his rearview mirror, what the guy was saying, he could read his lips. And he was just furious and rage. And he realized this guy is really getting off to what he's doing. He loves the dark. I know there is nobody in this room that is in that category. So I, interestingly, I'm listening to a book called Psychologies of Liberation. This is not in my notes. But it, it, it challenges this idea that we go through developmental stages and that it's linear, that, that, that we need to be seen in a context not just of our own developmental stages, but in the context of community, of institution, of uh, connections, of the whole system, really. But it's, it's based on the work of um, Martin Barro, who was a Jesuit priest and psychologist. And it's, really, it's a really good read, and I do recommend it. It's called Psychologies of Liberation. You know, what I want to say is that we, if you look at the papers, more than the TV, if you look at the papers, uh, they're filled with examples of people who love the dark. 
wealthy people taking advantage of the system. Just yeah. the, all of it. So this gets into the story I'm going to tell. A friend of mine texted earlier, like, why is it that people know what we know? We know things are messed up, but we keep doing what we do, right? So this story, um, let's backtrack a tiny bit. These are two of the most well-known Western philosophers. And Alfred North Whitehead famously said that all of philosophy is a footnote to Plato. Plato's writings are footnotes to his teacher, Socrates. Socrates never wrote anything down. And yet he's famous, more famous than, as famous as Jesus, I would say. And Socrates and Jesus actually have quite a bit in common. As I said, neither of them wrote anything down. They did not record their teachings. They spoke in parables and allegories. They used those parables and allegories to get their point across. They both enjoyed wine quite a bit. They were both condemned to death by the state. The students or followers that, 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 that they taught wrote stories about them after they died. Plato was one of those students. One of my favorite stories that Plato wrote down is the allegory of the cave. It's a dialogue between Socrates and Glaucon written after the fact. Plato is somewhat of a literary genius, I think probably like the writers of John, in that he shaped his material in an incredibly lifelike and conversational way. He made it come to life for the readers. So here's a condensed version of the story. Let's imagine for a minute that you live in a cave. And in this cave, your body is chained up so that all you can look at is straight ahead of you. You can't look side to side. You can't turn around and see what's behind you. Food is placed in your mouth readily for you, so you're spoon-fed. You were born in this cave, so to you, this cave is home. This is familiar. Some guys behind you, which you can't see, are making shadow puppets from a fire that you also can't see, and the echo noises of their clanging around behind you are all that you can hear. These are the images and sounds that you've seen your entire life. Sounds pretty terrible, right? But there's no way that you could know that this is terrible because it's your whole world. You're getting pretty good at this point at understanding how these patterns and shadows work. You know the stories by now. You know that you can narrate them for the, your other friends who you're also chained to. You know when that shadow tree is about to fall over and clonk the shadow guy on the head. And you know that eventually the shadow guy will get back up and be okay. You know the stories by now. You're rewarded for knowing how the story goes. You're rewarded for being the best predictor of the shadows anyone has ever met. Until one day, quite suddenly, someone comes out, unchains you, drags you out of the cave and into this bright, sunlit world. But you don't know it's a sunlit world. You don't know what the sun is. You feel confused, disoriented, and scared. And at first, you're like, ow, my eyes, it's too bright. Your first instinct is to go back to the familiar, to go back to the cave, to the shadows on the wall, which you think are real. Even as your eyes begin to adjust, you don't believe them because everything you ever thought was real is gone. You'd look at the tree and you'd say, that is not a tree. I know trees. And you are not a tree because trees are not, what is that color? That down there is a tree. But you're wrong because that down there is a shadow of a tree. Some little voice inside of you is telling you to keep looking around to stay above in the light, 
So you give it another day. Over time, your eyes adjust, you see more, you notice the sun, you notice that the sun gives everything color, that it becomes dark again at night. You notice that the sun is the source of all life and light, and you start to feel really foolish, but also excited, and maybe a little bit in awe of what you're learning. And you begin to go, my whole life has been a shadow of a life. You start to realize that. But eventually, you'd be overwhelmed with such joy and such conviction that you want to run back down to the cave, and you want to share it with these other prisoners who are chained to one another, still watching the shadow puppets on the wall. You want to tell them about all the beautiful, terrible, and amazing things you've seen. So you'd say something like, guys, what you're seeing is not a tree. Trees are green. And they'd look at you like, what in the heck is green? And that, that is not a tree. Green is not a tree. That on the wall that we're looking at, that's a tree. Don't be so stupid. But since you've been to the light, you can't see the tree in the cave anymore. It doesn't even look like a tree to you. It's so flat and one-dimensional. You've seen what Plato calls the good, that which gives light and life to everything else. You didn't make up the light because you've seen it with your own eyes by now, but no one in the cave can understand you, much less understand what green is. So in this moment of returning to the cave, you're totally alone. And it would be so easy to rejoin your family of prisoners at this point. It's so familiar. They're chained to one another. You know how to do this routine. But you're forever doomed to watch this shadow play. You know eventually your eyes would readjust, that eventually you would believe the images in front of you, that maybe the other images you've seen would fade from your imagination, or you might even be able to convince yourself that it was just a dream, that they weren't real. But something in you knows that there was something more. The other choice you have is you insist that green is beautiful, that it's the most incredible thing you've ever seen, and you invite these other prisoners to unchain their bodies and come see for themselves. Follow me, you'd say. And you'd know that you run the risk of being rejected, maybe killed, because of their fear of the light, of the unknown. The other possibility is that you gain a community of light seekers, people who will join you. And this is one of the most difficult and vulnerable but ever more rewarding paths to follow the path of green or of the light. So um, one of the criticisms that I have of institutional religion is that it has taught us how not to read the Bible. Um, we've been taught to memorize certain verses but not to read big scopes of things. Not to sit down and just read the Gospel of John in one sitting. So I want you to have an appreciation for the scope of this work that we are taking this deep dive into. It opens up with the first sign that says, heady stuff is coming, right? The kind of stuff that makes you giddy and lighthearted and happy, and if you get too much of it hung over, <laughs> this is water in the wine story. That's at the beginning of the gospel that says, take note, this is what's coming. Then that's followed by the story of Nicodemus, moving from dark to light. 
The whole Gospel of John is about this. These two things are bookends at the very, very beginning. And then we'll get to, when we get to the resurrection story at the end, you'll see the other bookend about light and how, how that works in John. But get it, this is a progression we're making here. So we're moving from the dark to the light. It's a journey. And I have good news and bad news about it. The first is, the good news is that it's possible. It's possible to do this. The bad news is that it's difficult. Now, this should not be a surprise to us because Jesus says elsewhere, there are two ways that you can walk in this world, right? There is this big, broad, wide, spacious, easy path, and that's the one that most people pick, except all of you. And, and, and then there is the light way, which is straight and narrow and few choose it. So light and dark exist in the world. Light and dark exist in us. I'm now, I'm now talking about spiritual principles. I'm not talking about physics. We need the dark, and we need to enter the dark both to appreciate the light and to bring things into the light. Um, there's nothing wrong with the dark. It's like yin and yang. But... To quote John Sanford, as spiritual principles, the light and the darkness struggle against each other and constitute a pair of moral opposites that requires us to choose between them. Now, the importance of this is that we can only grow into and know our true selves by walking into the light. We grow and know both at the same time by walking into the light. The light is that which enlarges us. The light is that which allows us to bring enlarged living into the world, enlarged lives into the world. What was it Jesus said? Let your light shine. There's a song about that. So, uh, to quote Sanford again, to belong to the light is to become conscious. To refuse the light is to become dark. <clears throat> How many of you uh, get the Richard Rohr Daily Meditations? Did you read it today? Read it today? About Carl Jung. Read that. If you haven't read it and pay, or didn't take it seriously, go back and reread it because it is so on target to what we're talking about right here. When Europe was being engulfed by Nazi Germany, and it's analogous to the time in which we live, okay? Jung wrote to a friend, and he said, I think the night has descended on Europe. Heaven knows if and when and under which conditions we shall meet again. There is only one certainty. Nothing can put out the light within. Now, unless I am badly misreading the signs of the times, we need this faith and hope for today and the days ahead. Now, here's a paradox. 
we don't become enlightened by just paying attention to the light. We have to understand the works of darkness and how darkness works as well. Jung also once wrote, one does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making darkness conscious. Not the darkness in the world, not the darkness in others, but the darkness in ourselves. And this passage in John says that the general tendency of humans, that is all of us, is to love the dark. In Buddhism, this is referred to as our attachments. Uh, in doing Enneagram work, this is being uh, unaware of the negative side of our own personality, or what the Enneagram people call our passions. Well, I think one reason that we prefer the dark to the light is that we don't want to face up to our own evil. We don't want to face up to our own complicity in what's going on in the world. Uh, those of you who know something of my journey know that it began in the late 50s by my being involved in the just burgeoning civil rights movement that was taking place in uh, Tennessee in the late 50s. My father was as good a human being as you will ever hope to find, and he was a racist. I can remember as a kid my father being actively involved in getting people, white people, to pay their poll taxes as a way to keep black people from voting. All right? Now, some of you are too young to remember that. But we have exactly the same thing going on now. It's just dressed in nicer clothes. Now, if you ask the people if, who do this, who put these policies in place, for the most part, with few exceptions, they will tell you they are not racist. My father would have said that. They have a lot of other excuses for what they do. But the fact is, we love the dark. Light comes by making darkness conscious. When we see the darkness that is in us, we can move into the light. When we see the darkness that is in the systems that we are complicit in keeping in place, we begin to move into the light. Now, this is hard work. Another way of putting Jesus' teaching about the two ways is that the life of consciousness and truth requires effort. The life of unconsciousness and darkness is just following the path of least resistance. Now, those of you who are undertaking a path to move from dark to life, you know what I'm talking about is true. Living and examined life is hard work. Um, to examine your inner life, that takes a lot of work. Keep a dream journal, that takes work and effort. Have a daily spiritual practice, that takes effort. It takes time. It's inconvenient. 
But as I have said, if you want to move from the dark to the light, you have to have a daily spiritual practice. You have to do it every day regardless of how you feel. Rain or shine, in the mood or not in the mood, you have to get up and do it. And you can't quit in three months by saying, I did it and didn't get anything out of it. You do it every day for the next 80 years. <laughs> and then come tell me how you do it. Now, here's another paradox. If you do that, I can promise you, you will have more energy for living. You will have more energy for life. Your heart will be lighter, and you will begin to see the sense in this idiot teacher of yours who says we have a moral obligation to be happy, to at least live with light hearts. You know, it's, it's, as you're saying that, even our spiritual practice can become sort of mindless, right? Like it, it, we, we can stay numb to what that's doing in our lives too. We can stay, we can just do the ritual and not see that it's moving through us or working through us. So the, the, the trick is to do the practice and to stay conscious of what the practice is doing. Well, and, and, and again, that's what institutional religion did right. and what it continues to do is to say, uh, well, if you pray the rosary right. or you work your prayer beads or you yeah. do whatever, then yeah. you're safe. Right. But it's not that. You have to bring your heart right. into this. Heart and mind. Yeah, absolutely. So you say that the scripture says people loved the darkness rather than the light. Jesus said that. Uh, Jesus said it verbatim, and it was written down in the conversation between It was recorded and on a little recorder. Yeah. That I have it on my iPhone, actually. Um, <laughs> it's been passed down to me through generations. It's like that voicemail you keep. I have one from Jesus. Um, anyhow. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> So when we love the darkness, I think it's usually because something about that darkness is serving us. You know, we self-medicate in some ways. It serves something in us. The allegory of the cave points out the comfort of staying in the shadows because it serves our comfort. It serves us to stay in community with people who are doing what we're doing. It is hard to break away from that. I don't know so much that we love the dark or if we think that we love it because we haven't faced it. Like the prisoners, we can be in a belief system or pattern of behavior and never question it. We never gain our little bioluminescence like the, the jellies and the, the, the hatchet fish that adapted to the ocean. We didn't get that. We haven't gotten our bioluminescence yet. And the shadows behind us grow longer and longer and we drag them around without ever turning and seeing where they're coming from. My favorite muse, James Baldwin, said, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. Truer words have not been spoken. And so now I get to my children's book, Lemony Snicket. This is a great metaphor for facing things. It's about a little boy who is afraid of the dark. I am not going to read the whole thing. That would take too long, but a few pages just to give you the meat of the story. Laszlo was a little boy who was afraid of the dark. Mostly the dark spent its time in the basement, but at night the dark went out and spread itself against all the windows and doors of Laszlo's house. In the morning, the dark went back to the basement, and he would peek at it just to be sure. Hi, he would say. Hi, dark. He did this every morning. Just said hi to the dark. Until one night, the dark came to his room and said hi back. 
the dark says, I want to show you something. Bravely, Laszlo followed the dark all the way down to the basement. Come closer, says the dark. The dark says to him, you might be afraid of the dark, but the dark is not afraid of you. That's why the dark is always close by. The dark peeks around the corner and waits behind the door, and you can see it up in the, up in the sky almost every night, gazing down at you as you gaze up at the stars. Without a creaky roof, the rain would fall on your bed. Without a smooth, cold window, you could never see outside. And without a set of stairs, you could never go into the basement where the dark spend it, spends its time. Without a closet, you would have nowhere to put your shoes. And without a shower curtain, you would splash water all over the bathroom. And without the dark, everything would be light, and you would never know you needed a light bulb. So the dark hands him a light bulb. Thank you, said Laszlo. You're welcome, says the dark. The dark is our teacher. We say hi to it, maybe gently, quietly at first. The basement is our unconscious. As in the story, it will make itself known. It will come to you. If we go to it, it can help us adapt our sight. It can shine the light on uncomfortable truths. In our country, I think these truths are the detrimental effects of white racism, poverty, patriarchy, and consumerism. I don't think we're going to find the light in our court systems or in our elected officials. We've witnessed a justice system over and over again that too often protects the puppets of justice, the shadow puppets of justice, rather than actual justice. It's more committed to white men and boys with guns than to black men and boys without them. I'm not sure we're going to find the light in most churches. It's a deeper call than that. The light is already within you. That is the point of this story. And it is only by facing the dark that your light, the light bulb, becomes useful. This is, I believe, the essential message of the Jesus and Nicodemus dialogue. And I think the future of faith, that that light is in us. And that tremendous and beautiful light always overpowers the dark. Mm. So the Jesus in John says that um, we love the dark. And I go back to the, what Eugene Peterson said about um, we're in a crisis. God light streamed into the world, but men and women everywhere ran for the darkness. They went for the darkness because they were not really interested in pleasing God. We love the dark. <clears throat> and I would say that we love the dark not because we um, are dumb or stupid, but we love the dark because we're ignorant. We ignore who we truly are. And again, the theme that you hear at the beginning of every class here is our intention is to seek to know who we, are, who we are in God and who God is in us, or who we are in sacred mystery and who sacred mystery is in us. Now, the good news is that if ignorance is our basic fundamental problem, we're dealing with something that's fixable. The anecdote of ignorance is to um, wake up move into the light. And as I keep saying, it is that simple and it is that 
difficult. What all great spiritual teachers have taught, what Jesus teaches, was that if we would live in the light, there is nothing, no matter how much it hurts or disappoints or frustrates, that can destroy the strength of our inner peace, our ability both to endure and to respond to whatever happens. And the more I personally do my own personal work and the more I delve into what the scholars I respect say about the document that we're using as the basis of this talk, the clearer it becomes to me that the movement called Christianity and uh, the meaning of what it means to be a Christian is that we are called, if we seek to follow Jesus, into a community of self-conscious people who are committed to work to transcend the things that divide us both internally and externally. That's what I think it means to be a Christian currently. That's my current definition. Um, we have been watching a series on Hulu called Dope Sick. Any of you seen it? It's about the opioid crisis. And, um, you know, we like to think that the United States is the greatest country in the world. And it is for an increasingly smaller and smaller group of people. We have higher and higher rates of childhood poverty, sky-high levels of gun violence, a health care system that covers fewer and fewer people at a greater per capita cost than any other country in the world, a racism that has been with us since the founding of the country but is now making itself brazenly forceful. And most shockingly, we have the highest opioid deaths of any country in the world. Over 100,000 people in the last 12 months. That's a five-fold increase in the last 20 years. Why is that? Now, some people have blamed the pandemic and perhaps the things associated with the COVID crisis contributed to it. But I think the real reason is that we as a nation are in spiritual agony. Opioids relieve distress and induce euphoria. Um, when I recently had hand surgery, I asked the surgeon if he would give me Oxycontin. <laughs> I just want to see what it's like. I was teasing him, of course. And he said, you're not getting that here. So a lot of Americans are craving relief from unhappiness, discontent, malaise, agitation, other emotional pains. Other wealthy European countries don't have this. Spain has one death per 100,000 people for opioids. We have over 21. We're at the bottom of the heap of all the countries. And we also lead the world in alcohol abuse. Christianity's got to be a place in which that which divides us internally and externally can be probed, where oneness internally, externally can be practiced. This Gospel of John, like the rest of the Christian movement, 
did not come into being with a Bible that contained the Word of God. There was no Bible. There was no creed except, and someday we're going to get into this, the first creed in the Christian church, in Christ there is no Jew or Greek, no slave or free, no male or female. That is to say, in the Christian movement early on, Ethnicity, class, or gender neither counted for you or against you. It did not have a form of worship that placed God on a throne to dispense justice. didn't make people get on their knees to plead for mercy. It didn't have any political power that it used to control and divide. And I think that if the institution is to have a future, it's got to recover this. This must be the future of faith. It must be something that puts aside those things that divide and condemn, and, and especially authoritarianism. And I agree, the challenges we face are great. But if we are to be a people of faith, the good news is we don't have to create this out of nothing. It's here in the Gospel of John for us. As uh, G.K. Chesterton once wrote, he said, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and not tried. While I was working on this talk, I found some words from Rumi that I had never seen before. And they gave me um, a ton of encouragement about this moving from uh, light from darkness into light. Rumi said, think of the big moves you've already made from being single cell to being a human being. <laughs> so stay lighthearted and keep moving. <laughs> I love that. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and we'll see you here next week. <laughs>